1: Hello! It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this Thursday, we've got Patrick Klepek. Hello, hello. And Danielle Riendo.
0: Who is ready for some Basketball.
1: I am always ready for more basketball. That's not really true. I'm always ready for more football. There's going to be less football than there was a few weeks ago, given that the AAF <laughs> yeah, apparently yeah. already yeah. folded. Update,
2: update so on a sad. previous Waypoint. Um, the AAF has been shut down oh. uh, three-fourths through its its first season. It's oh. gone. My, my, my Apollos, who did well, I don't know what their final record was. They were one of the better teams in the league, but they didn't even make it to the championship.
1: Well, there is no championship. No. The so, championship. yeah. <laughs> what, could, what could be more American than a league that launches with not enough money to pay its employees uh, for a complete first season and closes down when management's expectations and hopes are not met? Because there was no reason to suspect they would be. Uh, so farewell, AAF. You are a classically American morality tale. Uh I have a lot of sympathy the for XFL. players who competed in this. <laughs> yeah, and uh, also I feel really bad for anyone who got injured playing in that league. Uh, yeah, that was sucks. All ended up. That, that sucks. But, uh, Danielle, speaking of not even undercompensated athletes, but uncompensated athletes. <laughs>
0: yes, completely uh, uncompensated.
1: Your waypoint this week is a really fascinating profile of a women's college basketball star named Sabrina Ionescu. Yes, uh, and the article "Sabrina Ionescu is always on" by Miran Fader. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the article and who Sabrina Ionescu is, and uh, what sort of the thrust of this profile
0: is? Yeah, uh, so I found it uh, sort of looking at uh, just general women's sports stuff, which occasionally I do uh, as an as an interest of mine. I have not actually followed women's college basketball pretty much at all uh, at any point in my life, other than just generally enjoying the game of basketball. Like many of the things in my life uh, about sports, it's sort of like other than the sports I've actually played, it's sort of like, oh, I'm just always kind of interested in the games and and what's going on in them and, and all of that. Uh, and I found this really incredible profile. It's in Bleacher Report magazine uh, about this really, really dominant player who just today I saw ESPNW kind of had her as number one in the you know, upcoming WNBA draft. So she's really Really good. She has the record for triple doubles. And that's not just the women's record for triple doubles. That is, she has way more than the next, like than the number one male college basketball player. And triple doubles. Correct me if I'm wrong. Again, not like a super basketball person, but that is okay.
1: You're in a double. Out of digits, five on statistics,
0: out of five like major statistics, right? It's five or is it six?
1: It is, but almost always it's referring to three. Okay. That's the thing. Like if you're That's posting triple. triple doubles yeah. with like steals, like if you get if you're getting in double digits on steal, well, that probably means you're playing a really <laughs> shitty team, honestly. Like <laughs> somebody was screwing <laughs> up, it. like you you, you yeah. owned somebody completely in that game. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so by and large, it means double digits on points, double digits on assists. And double digits on rebounds. Uh so it's I guess it's kind of a good measure of like completeness yes. as a player. Like you not just fifth one. Uh blocks. Oh. Huh. Okay. Yeah, still also the blocks hard are to, like so also hard to Double yeah. digits on that. Especially okay. with um giant players, I think, being de emphasized in uh in basketball overall. But uh yeah, no, she, that is a wild stat for her and a wild accomplishment.
0: Yeah. Really, really incredible, and I'm always interested uh, – sorry, guys, but I am always fascinated when a a woman athlete has some sort of dominance over like e- even like the men in that particular sport. I'm always like, wow, what's she doing? Yeah, you know, what's she doing? Because that's not always necessarily the thing that you see sure. every day. So it's always like, wow, oh my god, I, I need to know more about this person. It's a really great, uh, both sort of somewhat classical sports profile, you know, sort of looking at the person, what they're like, what they're like in conversation, what their basketball career has been like, and also a really fascinating sort of psychological portrait of a person who is almost pathologically driven. And one thing I do want to talk about, we can get further into this, because I know we're just kind of uh, dipping our toe in at at the top here, but just what this kind of says about the way we look at athletes and the way we sort of frame their success. Uh, and and what it might mean in terms of at what point does an incredibly determined, incredibly successful athlete kind of push over into territory that is like a little bit terrifying and a little bit um – possibly unhealthy, uh, because there are certain things about uh, how much of a perfectionist she is, how much she is driven. The title of the piece reflects this, that she's always on, that she, she doesn't really get to relax and take a break. She doesn't feel like she can relax and take a break. She always needs to be kind of striving for perfection, not not just success, but perfection. So that's that really uh, kind of drew my eye to this piece.
2: Yeah, I would say that's probably like the like when I look at my notes, it was just like me growing increasingly uncomfortable <laughs> with yeah. like the way she approaches uh, the whole the the sport, her athleticism, and it's what for me was like trying to figure out. And I haven't read enough. I I've always wanted to read more sports books because as much as I follow sports, I haven't read a lot of like in hindsight, like deep analysis. It's mostly just like the surface level stuff that is like in the moment and. And really profiles on, like, people who succeed and why they think – like, how much is why they think they succeed versus, like, why they actually do succeed. And, like, reading this profile, it's, like, hard – like, I find myself just, like, viscerally responding to this notion that you you have to be perfect. You have to yell at your teammates. There's a whole side note. Like, there's a whole lot of discourse happening now about, like, the, like, notion of yelling being, like, a useful way to, like, coach people up and – whether that's just something people have gotten used to or if that is actually effective as a sort of like management technique and I don't know I, I kept going like ah she <laughs> seems amazing but also I do not want to be around her which is brought up <laughs> in the piece as like sure. people had that reaction and then I can't tell if they just became conditioned to doing to being around her and doing well or it's like a you know like you're a prisoner of of, of her own making but she's clearly an incredible athlete and I just that's I guess I loved the way the profile Delved so far into her personality And the fact that I had that kind of reaction Is both a reflection of like a really interesting person And a really well written Profile piece
1: yeah. um, I think one of the interesting things Like to sort of understand where she's coming from One of the things that's profi- like Brought up right at the start is that there is nothing physically impressive abro- right. about Vasco uh, yeah. as a player. Like, you know, we we've talked about other uh, you know, we were talking about like the NFL Combine, this emphasis on like what's their wingspan, you know, like <laughs> let's measure let's measure the thighs on this dude. Uh you know, stuff like that. Just like and yeah. kind of these like you want ridiculous like proportions, uh like incredible feats of strength, uh, not in like the festivist sense, but like in the <laughs> like, you know, yes. uh bench press uh, you know, max out sense. Or even the length um, of fingers. Right. Yeah. Like hand size. Exactly. And Sabrina Ionescu is pretty average for a basketball player, even you know, in women's basketball. She's not small, but she's not big. Uh there's yeah. there's nothing particularly like physically dominant about her. And yet the results are you know, again, like to refer to that triple-double statistic, she is a dominant player and always has been. So what she is replacing – what she has replaced uh, like raw physical ability with here is raw mental ability and drive. And there were some things that were – There were really cool. Like one of the details I loved uh, is that she's a little bit of a basketball autodidact. Mm-hmm. And there's this description of there. There are two things about her that really like just were incredibly cool to think about. One is that when they teach most players to shoot, they're taught to like aim at the back of the rim, uh, and that's the reference point when shooting. And she didn't have that training, so she just watches the ball as it sort of like leaves her hands. Like kind of she made it sound like she was self-taught, ball. right? Yeah, that now, the, that's kind of what my takeaway was. Well, I mean, obviously, she's coach, also had but- a. She had a coach since third grade, so she's, like, Uh, a little bit (laughs) self-taught. All right. Okay, fair. But during that formative, she still does this really, like, idiosyncratic uh, aiming technique. The other thing, though, and this kind of blew my mind. uh, She knows how the ball moves and rotates based on who is shooting it. Like, she knows basically all these styles that her teammates use. And one of the reasons she's so dominant as, like, a rebounder is that She's not looking to see who is shooting or what the positioning is. She's just following the arc of the ball and its rotation. And she knows that like based on who shot that and the the rotation, the the ball usually like bounces off the backboard in this direction. So she knows where to position herself. Um and that is like a level of granular understanding, like ability to read a play that to me, it looks like the ball like goes, you read the arc, and that's the end <laughs> of the story. And well, there and she you, is. Like, you watch the
2: NBA, and it seems like, yeah. or the WNBA, like high level play, it's mostly like players kind of looking at a basket and then going where physics going. And that made me want to ask you a question, Danielle, as someone who is far and away the the most capital A athlete of, of anyone <laughs> at Waypoint, is sure. part of what I took We're away in my from this piece. Right
0: now. I don't know if you can we, see. See, there you go. Exactly. <laughs>
2: Um, yeah. is reading this piece and that, especially that paragraph that uh, you know discusses how sort of like un, uh, how unlike the typical type you would expect for like a a, a, uh, a an elite basketball player, and how much his profile spends uh, illuminating the sort of like intelligence uh, efficiency she has. For you, as someone that has participated a lot more at athletics, like thinking about that like balance between like athletic IQ versus like like athletic you know like strength you know i'm trying to articulate like the you know what i mean like
0: strength versus the intelligence and ability to kind of read patterns and execute on that super well yeah absolutely that's one of the things that hooked me the most other than the sort of psychological element here is just how how fine detailed she is able to understand this game on it does feel like she's operating at least the the case is made here in this piece, that she's kind of operating on the next level because of how much work she's put in, because of how much perfectionism and determination she has put in, she is actually able to read that next little bit. Like, I'm sure any great basketball player has some command of some of these things, right? I'm sure a great player who has played with another teammate for a very, very long time has... Some idea probably of the shooting style of their teammate versus somebody else. But she's able to read all of it like in an instant and able to actually really execute on that and make that next move based on that, which is frankly really exciting to think about as just like, oh, this is within the human capability to like understand this game on this level. It's it's also uh, always cool to read about somebody who is not like necessarily, you know, the the, the – Content warning, I suppose, for bodies here, but like this sort of genetic uh, specimen that maybe certain Olympic athletes might be where they have particular traits that actually do sort of, um, you know, make them a little bit better, give them that tiny little bit of an edge. She doesn't have any of that. And she's able to play this game at this level. And this is not a new game. You know, basketball has been played since, what, 1902? 1892 it's one of those years i'm sure it's 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 a while this is a very well developed game Long this is not new time ago. yeah this is not like a new sport where you know sometimes people who again mma is somewhat in this region of like there are people there who have relatively average bodies that have just been worked to a particular degree and trained to a particular degree versus sort of games that are older and you really know kind of where you might be able to go with that i find this incredibly fun to kind of think about just even in terms of my own uh, my own sport and and seeing somebody on a particular level able to like anticipate moves or antip- anticipate like where the bone is in somebody else's arm to do like a perfect arm bar. Like I was able to kind of translate this to that and I was like, oh, my God, this is possible. And then we came to that other side of like, oh, my God, it's possible with a level of obsession that might be incredibly unhealthy and may indeed Uh, possibly hinder her in the future. It's possible she could hurt herself playing like this. That is sort of hinted at in the piece where they basically have pitch rules for her. Like, you you can't be on the court past this hour because you might actually hurt yourself doing this, you know, repetitive stress or uh, this action that might be a repetitive stressor, which is really uh, kind of damning to think about. Like, this level of obsession, this level of perfection – could be damaging it could be damaging the people around her or her herself right which is
1: yeah there are a few (laughs) things about this aspect of it that i wanted to get into yeah um gosh i think where's the i think before we get into any of this i would actually like to start with a question this is such an effective piece of sports writing such an effective profile that to a degree I also wonder, and this all seems so familiar as a sort of person. Like if you ever read, there's this great article. I think it was a uh, Michael Jordan at uh, like forty or something article, or, or Michael Jordan at fifty, yes. uh, where it's talking about him dealing with the fact of his aging and his. This retirement. is where
2: the the anecdote comes, where he tries to like come back on the court and play, because um, he own he's the owner of the uh, uh, Charlotte. The- Uh, Hornets. Hornets. Yeah. And he goes on to try and like play with one of the players (laughs) and like, can put it together for like five minutes or something like that. I forget the full
1: anecdote. Right. No, like it was basically, he was obsessed with regaining his playing weight. uh, And also there were times he would try to practice like he would when he was a 25 year old player Mm -hmm. and try to go as hard as he used to. And it just left him like physically devastated. But there's this point in the article where, where he talks about his drive and kind of acknowledges that while it was a gift, in his later years now, he's finding it to be a curse because it doesn't go anywhere. Like, where, like there used to be an outlet for this drive and in intensity. Now there is not, but the drive and in intensity is, is still there. And it, this article reminded me a lot of that. But at the same time, it reminded me so perfectly of these types of profile of sports stars that I also found myself wondering... Is there just a little element of, like, do do we, do we worry there might be a little bit of confirmation bias in this yeah. article? I expect this player to, I'm looking for what archetypes this player fits, and then we get a profile sort of demonstrating how she fits those archetypes. I think this was a conscientious and good piece of reporting, I want to be very clear. Yeah. But I also know that when you're writing stories like that, you do tend to look for through lines and narratives. And the thing i couldn't fully square is that on the one hand she seemed so intense to the point of being very difficult to work with but then also it goes out of the way to show she's a great teammate and i kind of wondered is this maybe an oversimplified portrait of a per- of a of a person uh that emphasizes things we kind of expect to see emphasized with regard to like greatness and drive
0: yeah i i think that's absolutely a very valid uh both viewpoint and potentially like a You know, kind of finding that uh, there is a simplification in a lot of sports journalism, even great sports journalism, Um, because one of the reasons we go to sports journalism or go to sports, I think, and, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or if this isn't true for other people, that's super fair, but we go to sports sometimes for simplified stories. We can see human excellence on a on a grand stage. At, you know, people who are so incredibly good at these, you know, really amazing physical actions. There is a simplicity in that. There typically are winners and losers in that and a lot of sports journalism does play into this. This these ideas of archetypes, these ideas of sort of this is the grand stage on which this human drama is unfolding and and there are fairly simple outcomes, at least in terms of, you know, on the game level or on the season level or something like that. So I do think that's kind of a feature of this type of writing. I also think it is indicative of, uh, you know, we might have a little bit of a determination fetish or fetishization in, in American and in the way we talk about sports. We talk about how hard fighters work, how hard athletes work, and we don't really talk much about the balance of that and how that relates to things like injury. Uh, If you work hard enough, and again, this is hinted at in the piece to some extent, but it's not really a a major feature here. But if you, it doesn't matter, uh, even if you are the most sort of like naturally gifted athlete in the world or the most, you know, if you have Wolverine style uh, (laughs) super healing, you're going to hurt yourself if you never take a break, if you never take rest, if you never are able to kind of do that step back thing. Uh, and that's something that I think is a failing uh, of us in a in a sports culture, the ability to only sort of fetishize that hard work uh, and not actually say like, OK, a slightly more holistic approach says athletes do need rest days. <laughs> they do need to chill out with their teammates sometimes probably and enjoy their teammate as a human being and not just a leader and not just somebody who's on all the time, which there are hints of that. But that's not really kind of the focus here as you were saying.
2: I mean like yeah that the piece uh, towards the end the, the piece of the end like touches on a thing that I was hoping was just going to be halfway through the piece and instead <laughs> was the end of the piece <laughs> which is it brings up like a moment like what because ha- you naturally the way this story is structured like Sona strives per- for perfection they are always trying to get better they demand the best out of everyone around them and that when all else fails they put it on their own back and then go out there and get the job done and at the end it's like what is what does this a person like that do when they encounter Failure. Now, granted, their, you know, their uh, uh, career is pretty young at this point, and so it's not surprising there's not, like, a huge amount of anecdotes there. But even the anecdote at the end that is about uh, failure and how they dealt with it is sort of just brought up as, like, well, of course, like, they d- also did fine with failure, and the sun came up the next day, and, like, <laughs> but they're also still really driven. Like, it was it was too bad uh, that they're I would have loved to have seen, like, a whole section, like, dug into what – my guess is this person has encountered – uh, failure, setbacks in other ways that would have been illuminating for that type of mentality. Because I couldn't help but think, um, you know, reading this piece, then uh, Rob, you bring up uh, the, the notion of Michael uh, uh, Jordan. Um, in, it is always fascinating to watch athletes at the height of their powers and then watch it come crashing down. Yeah. This happens most acutely in football, I think. I watch it the most, so I see it the most. But I can't help but remember the The last two seasons of Peyton Manning's career. Now Peyton Manning was a uh, an incredible quarterback for both the Indianapolis Colts, and then he finished his last couple of years in uh, Denver on the Broncos because he had like four neck surgeries, and it was like largely believed he is never going to be able to play the game again. And he worked his way back and got picked up by the Broncos and had to a couple of a couple of seasons there. But what often happens with uh, these these quarterbacks is that they play until literally like they're they're, they're playing in, a, in an All Pro season and then the next season they show up and they can't do anything and this mm. was so illustrated by the Broncos back to back Super Bowl appearances in which uh, uh, a couple of years back they went back to back they got their their ass kicked in one and then they came back for Peyton Manning's final year. And the year before that, he was still a physical athlete. He was never the kind of guy that could run around, you know, and like elude someone that was chasing after him. But he had incredible physical gifts and also the highest, probably the highest IQ of a football quarterback that I have seen in my lifetime. One of the things he was able to do to illustrate that was like so gifted – you see Tom Brady do this a lot too, so gifted at going to the line and diagnosing what the defense is going to do, changing the play to both confuse the defense and set up his offense for success, so that when he came back for his final year, this is a man that was a, was a stone block. He could not move. If the, the, someone from the defense got through, he was going down. He was not going to be able to elude them. He would literally just topple over like a pile of bricks. Yeah. Because his body could do things, He also could not throw the ball downfield anymore. A huge part about throwing the ball in football is being able to throw it 40, 50 yards for big plays. And he could not throw it more than like 15 yards. And when the ball came out, rather than being like a crisp spiral so the player could catch it, it was this wobbly-ass thing that like <laughs> oh. barely came out of his arm. Yeah. But he managed to win the help his team win the Super Bowl, yes, on the back of an incredible uh, all-time defense, but largely because he was so smart still, his football IQ still existed as his body failed him, and he was able to diagnose at the line and literally invent through mental acuity like ways of like getting his team down the field even though he could not throw a fucking pass. <laughs> and so I thought about things like that as I watch this and as we talk about athletes who are engineered that sort of way in which they just go, 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 and the, the literally the only thing that stops them is their body gives out. And then what do you do with the rest
1: of your life? What do you do, you know, what do you do from there is a fascinating question. Yeah. There was something else here though that I was thinking a lot about, which is how we talk about how stars interact with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is this is the other part of this. On the one hand, the, the way they introduced the idea of like her playing with other people is to sort of talk about Uh, moments when she has... She has a couple things she does. She will take control of a game. She'll be like, here, give me the, give me the, uh, you know, the the clipboard coach, I'm going to draw up a play because I need to take the game winning shot, but also we'll scream at players. She thinks are not getting the job done, not working hard enough. Uh, or she describes there one incident is described where one of her teammates was just having a bad first half was missing a lot of field goals. And uh Inescu just screamed at her, you know, make a fucking shot. And the woman turned around and was like, I am trying. Uh, and the reply was, fuck trying, make it. And then, Mary Yoda. then
0: yeah,
1: yeah, and then this other woman comes out second half, makes a bunch of shots. And it's like, yeah, it, you know, it's it's what I needed to hear. Uh, but it was interesting to see how there is a bit of discomfort with how Ionescu comes across at first. But then everyone is at pains to say, but she's also a really great teammate. She sends you supportive mes- uh, messages. She'll practice late with you. Uh, she's great. We love her. And maybe. But the other part of this is, in my experience, people remember being screamed at way longer than they remember, you know, a nice text message or, like, staying late at the office to, like, you know, do extra work or staying late at the gym to take extra practice shots. And it reminded me a lot of, um, and literally in the opening of this, uh, one of Ionescu's favorite books is The Mamba Mindset, uh, which I think is literally by Kobe Bryant uh, about how he plays the game. And there's a lot with Kobe. Uh, first of (laughs) all, like he is like, like literally he's a difficult person to talk about because he was very credibly accused of sexual assault. Um, in addition to that, uh, even if you allow yourself to set that aside about Kobe Bryant, uh, which I think too much of the basketball world is is eager and happy to do. Yeah, did uh, you watch that farewell season of his? God no. I'd like no. Yeah, the all the farewell Kobe. Yeah, fuck that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the it's disgraceful. It's I think mean, it's still kind of disgraceful that he is still He won an Oscar. Yes. Or an Emmy? Like last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway. Yeah, he's still in wow. the mainstream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really gross. Um and very revealing. But even if we just, like, take that away and just look at Kobe as a player, Kobe was a terrible teammate. Yeah. Like, pretty much everywhere he went. Like, he was a guy who sparked... Uh, controversy in the locker room. And part of his philosophy was like somebody needs to provide that spark. Somebody needs to play that role of kind of being the provocateur and like holding people accountable, Uh, being willing to scream at people. Jordan famously, uh, punched Steve Kerr apparently in practice, though Steve Kerr I think has later said that actually it was him who punched Jordan. But anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, I started thinking about this this profile that Pablo Torre uh, wrote of, of Jeremy Lin when he was playing with Kobe at the Lakers and talking about like one in the morning's phone buzzes. And it's Kobe being like, oh, I hope you're as pissed as I am about how this season is going. I was thinking about just how exhausting that must be to deal with. And it's really only an act that is even remotely tolerable if you are clearly the best person. When Kobe like started to like age and struggle, suddenly that act was a lot less effective and, and inspiring, right? Like he wasn't carrying games himself. He was being an asshole. And this was the thing that I kept sort of returning to as I read this profile of Ionescu. Like, To what degree are we soft pedaling maybe some of the more cruel aspects of her position as a teammate?
0: There's also a lot here that – and I'm glad you brought up Kobe Bryant because something about this that that did give me pause as well is the gender dynamics here of a, a woman athlete acting in this way versus a man athlete acting in this way. And I, I do think as, as a sports culture or maybe certain parts of sports culture are beginning to actually talk about toxic masculinity in sports, it is – at least very beginning to be a conversation. Um, But this is like a very, very uh, sort of classic behavior of the like the alpha male, right? The like alpha male athlete who is like insanely great and he, you know, screams at everybody and he demands perfection. It seems to me like she has just sort of taken that wholesale. She's reading this book and she is sure acting like this. Now, uh, they do certainly go out of their way uh, to say that she is – that she sort of adapts her style to what she thinks that teammate needs might not be her place to to say what that teammate needs, but like the encouraging pat on the back versus the screaming at, they make the case that she goes one or the other. And I and i was a team captain in college and I, you know, nobody will be surprised to hear that I didn't yell at people ever. But I certainly knew that some uh, runners, you know, running up a really bad hill or, or having a really terrible day or running while feeling sick certainly needed something different for me on different days or or different athletes did need something different. I don't say that to excuse this uh, because I don't think that her taking an aspect that could be seen as toxic masculinity wholesale and just bringing it into a woman's game is the answer either. I certainly don't think that's a good idea. I just want to sort of point that out in terms of how we talk about male athletes versus women athletes, if it's helpful at all, basically.
1: I think it's certainly important. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's certainly important, right? This is a thing where – what do we make of a demanding uh star like this when it's a woman in women's basketball versus how is the, how does this come across in uh you know in, in a male athlete uh now that being said i i do kind of think the discourse might be changing overall just in terms of expectations like if you watch it one of the things that Kyrie Irving is trying to do in Boston is he's tried to sort of play that role of Taskmaster, uh, you know, team asshole, and it hasn't gone over well. <laughs> sure. Um, and he hasn't been able to carry it off because he's not, like, he's, <laughs> not he's good, but he's not that, like, yeah. Sure. Uh, like, Jor- like, Jordan could back that up because Jordan literally could take control of the team. So uh, so can uh, INS goof, by all accounts. But if you're not able to throw the team on your back and get it done, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Patrick, you were inside. Sure.
2: Well I was going to say it's also we have a lack of models to even look to, to for leadership right like probably part of the reason she's reading books like this why anyone read books like this you know and we're all familiar with you know people in our own industry like getting into management roles and that's no often no different than elite you know management and leadership are often you know uh, one and the same or have a lot of crossovers like what how are you supposed to handle that stuff people are often thrust into leadership roles by necessity not by volunteer sure. and so once you're there how do you find out the effective way forward when if you think about like the cyclical nature of all this is like all right well the most successful ones have done it x and then they are worshipped through books and sports reporting that enshrine yeah. y which often sands out like the the harshest acts aspects of it because we don't learn that stuff until decades later when people die or are more comfortable talking about the the aspects that didn't fit the splashy profile at the time. And so you're left with flawed models to build around in which you then can act flawed despite the fact that it's – what else are you supposed to do, right? And so I think that there is some aspect buried in this where it's like when, you're, when you have to become the – someone has to be the leader, right? Like there has to be a, a point person for it to work that there, there's a literal point guard in, <laughs> in basketball. Um, yeah. when you're searching for answers, when we don't have like credible alternatives, like that is, that is certainly a thing.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: either way, it's a really fascinating article and definitely, I, I also don't follow, uh, women's basketball, but I am going to be really curious to see how Ionescu's story plays out. Right. And I'm very curious if she does go pro I might actually start following wherever she goes in the WNBA because I'm just very curious to see how this act plays uh, when she's surrounded by a lot of women who've been similarly accomplished, right? And yeah. like, I'm very curious how this act looks when you're not the person who brought the Oregon Ducks, uh, you know, out of near irrelevance into uh, you know the highest competition. So, uh, yeah. thank you. It was a great article. Uh, and I highly recommend checking it out over at the Bleacher Report. Um, and I guess we'll have to see what happens uh, with Ionescu across her career. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we're come back with the rest of our show.
2: the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: All right, so Patrick, uh, you said before the show you want you had a quick shout-out. You've been listening to a podcast. We haven't talked about it uh, to date, but you mm-hmm. mentioned that the second season of the podcast uh, Justice in America – uh, just just came out and had sort of a fascinating conversation that you wanted to touch on, uh, you know, on the show.
2: Yeah, I just briefly wanted to shout out, like, sort of as like the 2020 primary, you know, is is well underway. Um, I've, you know, I think like a lot of people spent uh, a lot of flailing post-2016 to sort of like reexamine my own personal politics, take it as a time to like just thoroughly go through what do I believe, why do I believe it, what is the path forward, what if I was to reconceptualize how I, think about various, you know, uh uh ideas I have held to be true or just not reconsidered um over the years and so you know, we've shouted up a, pot- a podcast like Citations Needed, which is like really really good at like calling out bullshit um and I have found myself over and over like uh I really enjoy criticisms of, of systems, institutions, but also am now, like, really hungry for, if not answers, but just, like, conceptual ideas, ways of thinking, points of view that are about, well, okay, if we can't do A, what is the alternative? Um, and so uh, Justice in America is a – it's a two-season podcast so far. They just closed their second season um, in which it's a episode-by-episode, episode really fascinating uh, dissection of the criminal justice pro- uh, process if you liked uh, season 3 of serial like this is a really really good follow up to that to see like very in depth um understandings of different parts of the uh, uh criminal arrangements um and the, and the and the process that we use to to deal with uh criminality in society and the last episode opens with um yeah most of this podcast isn't necessarily about like solutions or paths to solutions it's a lot of like understanding why things went wrong, what things are wrong. And uh, they touch on like how do we radically reconceptualize even what it means to speak about these topics. And one of those is like being a prison uh, uh, abolitionist in which you literally conceive of how, what if we didn't have prisons, which is like a really difficult – like it's <laughs> that's, that's a fun thought experiment. But then like, okay, well, what – the fuck do we do with, like, you know, like, it's it's very, right. it's not neoliberal, it's not centrist to respond to that and go, like, I literally can't conceive of that because you have grown up with, and America has had, society has had that for all time. And so the episode brings on a prison abolitionist to talk through, like, what does that mean, both, like, practically near-term, medium-term, long-term, what are ways we can get there, what are ways that, we're, uh, that uh, places are already practicing um, the, the the idea of society without prisons, and so... I found it very useful to, like, have someone come on, talk through something that I would have originally had a response of, like, I don't know how to conceptualize that, so what if we did something that was a little more pragmatic? And even if that's the way things actually end up going, I really, really appreciated the episode to, like, do a deep dive into, like, taking incredibly and seriously something that you would uh, ordinarily have, like, a a response that is sort of like, ah, I just don't know what that means. And so you get scared of it, and I came away uh, like really enlightened and uh, interested in reading more about it, and so just wanted to shout out that episode, that podcast. If you're if you're like me, th- looking for those types of things as we head into this part of the process of thinking of 2020, I I found that podcast to be incredibly useful.
0: Nice,
1: very cool. Uh,
2: oh, but and I know also on that point wanted to, if people have similar recommendations, like I would really like um, citations needed. One of the things they did really well is they break down centrist neoliberal policy <laughs> and how much that overlaps with uh, uh, conservative uh, uh, foreign policy. It's really kind of one and the same. Like there really isn't a whole lot of like different thinkings. And they poke holes in that and show up the hypocrisy. But also I don't hear a lot of discussion like what is like the leftist approach to reconceptualizing foreign policy? So people have like recommendations on stuff like that, like not just foreign policy, but just kind of across the board. They're like more specific ways to read up on not just what's wrong, but like – what is a different way of doing it and how we could do it. I, I'm curious to hear those recommendations.
1: So it's interesting though, you framing it as like, ah, as we had in 2020, uh because these are like Paul, like it's very interesting to me because a lot of these ideas are way outside the context of the election cycle, uh mm-hmm. for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Like prison abolition is a societal transformation <laughs> level idea. Not you know what right. I mean? Not not a yeah a lot of people are talking about criminal justice reform. And I think I listened to a bit of the show uh, and realized I didn't quite have the vocabulary to fully dig into it. I got a little bit lost in the uh, restorative justice versus transformative justice. Uh, like there's, the, when you're dealing with like high level ideas like this, there can be a little bit of jargon or discourse that you're not fully like caught up on and it can make it a little bit formidable to, to get into. Uh, but it definitely seemed like these are ideas and, our political process exists primarily to, in terms of incrementalism, and you know how can we how can we take the existing system and make it a little bit better? Uh, and ideas like this are really about completely rethinking how we achieve any sort of criminal justice. How would we even? How do we even define or would, uh, what just the word justice even means? Right, like a central tenet of like
2: reconceptualizing a world like without prisons and it's like yes ultimately the world then probably does operate in an incremental fashion but like right now the no. the arrow the way it's the arrow is being pointed in the incremental uh uh progression in a way that is not rethinking how we could do it and so for yep. me it's like i'm trying to radically rethink my own position on those things and finding new ideas so it's like okay yes at least if we could be you can talk uh, as though we're gonna change society. And yes, the pragmatic the policy that is a little more pragmatic, it's a little more disappointing. But boy, if it's at least heading in a direction where we actually are rethinking things, like that's exciting and like a be- like I find it be more personal, yeah. personally interesting way to think about that stuff. And so I'm trying to think about even though <laughs> that's not necessarily what's gonna happen, you know, day one of twenty twenty one, um, you know, uh, but it's I still find it to be like a useful exercise because often I find my my own personal like fallback on pragmatism doesn't rethink what the end state is of that and it's useful to to rethink what the the end state of that would be
0: there's a wonderful uh, cartoon that was put up in the kitchen at the ACLU where I used to work that was the sort of – it was just like a comical view of like what every different stakeholder sees a piece of policy as and it starts with like a swing on a tree and it's like this is what the policy as you know as presented, as intended. And then of course it's like upside down when one other stakeholder looks like at it. The other one, the tree is upside down when another stakeholder looks at it. I'll share a link because I'm sure it's actually very popular but it's like a very – I've always sort of thought of that whenever I've thought about. Policy discussions and yeah, anything that gives more weight, more uh, you know, strength to what what feels like a, a better, more progressive way of doing things in life tends to help at least somewhat.
1: Um, <laughs> so my waypoint this week is a bit off the beaten path for what this podcast is intended to be. <laughs> is this uh, a game? Uh,
2: though, <laughs> sec- secretly just taking a Waypoint Radio topic and putting it into waypoints. <laughs>
0: Well, <laughs>
1: and also a way to force people to uh, look at the thing I want to talk about. Uh, yeah. that's a, you know Hell what I mean? Like yeah. Waypoint Radio is an interesting place because it's like, oh, here's what I'm playing this week. But the discussion <laughs> I really wanted to have about this required people to just like kind of look into this game a little bit more. Uh, because I think it becomes more interesting if you can interrogate it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so my Waypoint this week is something I talked about on Waypoint Radio last week, I want to say, or maybe a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's The Occupation by White Paper Games. And as I said on that show, it is a game of, it is, a, it is an immersive sim uh, about political intrigue and conspiracy in an alternate universe like 1980s Britain. Uh, It's telling the story of you are a reporter investigating a terrorist attack that is being used to sort of ram through this combination Patriot Act slash Brexit uh, (laughs) that's going to fundamentally transform society. And uh, throughout the, in the backdrop of this entire game, there's, you know, stories of massive protests and a government on the brink. Um, And I kind of wanted to talk about this game's politics and the way it chooses to portray them and what it is really about. Uh, Because I think it's a really interesting game, but I remain, there's something about it's, it's portrayal of politics and, and what it's communicating and it's use of setting uh, that is sitting somewhat awkwardly with me. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about what we make of, a game like this. Uh, Danielle, you, you got into it a little bit. I always sort of figured it'd be, it would be up your alley yeah. uh, as, as a sort of uh, small scope of immersive sim, but I'm curious what, what your take on was of this game and what you think it's trying to say.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I did, I played quite a bit of it. I did not finish it. So I, I have to caveat that I have looked at YouTube videos. I have sort of looked at things uh, and I, I did really enjoy it, but my, core uh, sort of uh, I I completely hear what you're saying and I, I also have the same feeling of, okay, I wish uh, I had a complete understanding of what the Union Act really was. Uh, I, clearly, it's an anti-immigrant act. In in the game, I should I should frame this. Uh, the game is all about this this sort of security center where they've developed uh, both some software and also, I guess, where this piece of policy has been you know, the brainchild of of uh, a couple of characters of creating the Union Act. Which, again, yeah, it's sort of sort of Brexit, also very Thatcher. As you say, as well, and also very Patriot Act, like it it is uh, very much sort of uh, allowing for the spying on British citizens here, right? Like complete lack of privacy, getting rid of immigrants lack of privacy, a whole bunch of things are kind of wrapped up in here. And they feel as if they're kind of picking and choosing from different eras of horrible conservative politics. And that for me was a little bit confusing, because I definitely kind of dug into a lot of the letters and email, not emails, like, well, sort of emails, I guess, like IRC uh, chat, that sort of thing, and was like, okay, but Who are you talking about here? You know, and that is where any confusion I have uh, with this politically kind of came from, because it does feel very much as if the writers of this game have something they want to say and they're fucking serious about it. And they went about it with a really cool, well-designed game. But the writing supports like 17 different readings and not necessarily in the way that I want it to support 17 different readings, if that makes any sense at all.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's, uh, like, I, am, I played through it twice. I played through some levels several times. Oh, wow. And it was a bit like the more I played, the less certain I felt that I understood what the game was actually about. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's, one, one way to frame this at the start, and it's an interesting decision, is that the occupation isn't really a mystery, Right. <laughs> um, while the reporter doesn't know what's going on, the reporter you play for most of the game is investigating what is the Bowman-Carson group really up to? What is the real story behind this bombing? Uh, the game literally opens with you playing a different character, Scarlet Carson, who is literally responsible for setting off this explosion. Like the first minutes of the game have you stinking around your office and like setting in motion the chain reaction that is going to kill 23 people, uh, in one of the Bowman, Bowman Carson buildings. And so you see the crime at the start. And so that isn't really the mystery. Clearly that's not what you're supposed to be in suspense about. That's not what is meant to be the most intriguing aspect of the occupation. Um, But then that leaves the question, if the central framing device is, you know, what really happened here? But you already know the explosion, at least, has this different story. What are you meant to be uncovering in this game? And what is the occupation maybe saying in how it portrays the act of discovery and what it is that you're discovering?
0: Yeah. There's also a a pretty... Help me work through this here because I I don't have a completely coherent uh, opinion of it. But there is something here that seems interesting to me and slightly weird to me. Uh, I don't know if it worked for you about the fact that you are a reporter, you are an investigator, you are a spy in a lot of ways, spying on the spies, you know, kind of like spying on this sort of secret software that is going to be the Patriot Act portion of this, which is interesting. And I think that works on one level as commentary, But it also, at the same time, it's looking at this sort of surveillance piece. It's also looking at this sort of anti-immigrant piece. And that's, again, where I kind of had tension between like, okay, these are both really good and valid forms of commentary. These are good and valid things to comment on. But I'm getting confused where one kind of leads into the other. And, again, like I said, I didn't finish the game. So it might be wrapped up a little bit better by the end. I did watch most of (laughs) a Let's Play. Okay, cool. All right. I'm shaking my head vigorously if you're wondering why
1: people are laughing. (laughs)
2: Okay. Is, cool. is some of this uh, <laughs> undermined? I I so I watched the first like ninety minutes, uh, and then I watched one of the endings. Like, there's a ch- there's a choice. I, I guess there's a choice at the end. I'm not gonna spoil like what the choice is necessarily, but I wonder if how much Rob, your understanding of where the game sort of like falters on, like you know what what is it trying to say? What does it want to say? Is is hinged on its framing and like the choice driven nature of it where like by by its very nature it has to back off committing to a or b because it needs to give the player options and it seems on on a higher level to be a, like a, a story about gray areas and perspectives um and maybe less about like coming down and like yeah but like that's the bad one like that's the
1: bad perspective <laughs> yeah that's a really good question. Um I think maybe it does get a little bit blurred in that You're right when you say this is game up perspectives and I think the occupation ends up having a degree of empathy and sense of humanity for everyone involved.
2: Like for example, like the, the one of the first major missions is you going to talk to like the PR head mm-hmm. for the group that is uh, running the the Union Act campaign, and she comes across as like very human, sensitive. She's not putting up a front, or if it is a front, it is a like <laughs> very detached uh, performance based front. But like the way the character seems to be written, performed is someone who's like, look, I'm trying to do the best with what I've got. We're 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 trying to actually do the right thing by the country, and is not someone who is. D- m- d- manipulating the facts to to an achieve an end in a, in a deeply cynical, uh, uh, sinister sort of way. Now, they, those things may still be true by virtue of what they're doing, and like part of the exchange is you finding evidence that contradicts like the narrative that they're putting out to the masses. But even when confronted with some of that evidence, it's like, well, but I don't think you really. I mean, again, it's like all like this is just a person. Like the game is almost portraying this as a person who is flawed, who is trying to do the right thing. But, jeez, they just happen to be doing it in, like, a super racist way. <laughs> and so I just found that to be, like, a really complicating factor in which I'm I'm sure it is true that there are people who are participating in things like this that are more human than the, like, you know, the mustache twirling in our heads or how they're portrayed on cable television. But maybe not nearly as much as this person. Uh, it seems like this game is assuming a little too much humanity and empathy on the part of the people that run these things. Um in a way that I had trouble buying, at least the
1: part that I watched. That is a great I'm, – I'm glad you pulled that because that is actually the one I was thinking of the most. So this is the other complicating part of this. There's a couple questioning sequences where if you have not collected evidence that directly contradicts what someone is telling you, then you can't pursue the line of questioning that mm. sort of reveals that they're, that they're lying. Her interview in particular, she does come across as uh, – Warm, doing her best, uh, someone you can sympathize with, doesn't seem to have vicious intent. But one of the things you uncover is that it does appear that she's literally sitting on evidence that like could exonerate uh, the person who's currently being scapegoated for this attack. There's this thing where uh, she, like one of the things being used to convict this guy is the fact that the ID card that was used the night of the explosion, his ID card... Um, he claims he reported it missing. Somebody stole his ID and there's no record of that. So if they're like, he's making that up after the fact, right? You discover that he reported it to this PR woman that mm-hmm. you interview and she suppressed, like she didn't pass that along. Like the report went awry after it had hit, hit her inbox. And when you confront her with that, she's, Her response is, oh, gee, I I guess I just forgot to log that. I must have hit my email after, and there's a lot of confusion. And you're left wondering, like, is she lying or, you know, I miss emails. Like, I guess that can happen. (laughs) Uh, There's a junk folder, and let me tell you, my vice folder, my vice email puts a
2: lot of real emails in that fucking junk folder, (laughs) right, where I have a reminder each week on my phone that literally says, Check the junk folder. You probably have the code for the game that you're
1: <laughs> wondering that you want to play in there. <laughs> and this is this is maybe part of the thing is that maybe the game – maybe this is one of the things that muddies the waters here is that the game is so interested in portraying the humanity of these people. And the thing you discover is just the little office dramas and gossip. Uh, they're all just everyday people that I'm not sure this game recognizes that sometimes stories have a fucking villain. Yeah. Um, that there are people – that like there are some people who do want to inflict harm on other people. There are like people who choose policies that are harmful not because they are well-meaning and confused but because literally they want to stick it to somebody. They, they have prejudices they are trying to exercise. And that interview is a perfect example of even if you catch her red-handed and lie after lie, you can still come out of that meeting being like – man, I guess everyone here is just, you know, doing their best in a confusing time.
0: What's so interesting about that particular interview, I had the the, the telephone records that she, even when you sort of show her again, he, the, the suspect uh, in the bombing was uh, actually calling from another location, which sort of helps to prove his innocence. But she sat on that too. And if you show it to her, she's just kind of like, I you know, I don't know. Like she she's just such a master of spin, which is hilarious because of course she's clearly either she's either completely incompetent or great at PR, which is her job. So that's nice. Uh but there is a lot that feels like commentary. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like commentary. I
2: like Danielle. Does it you know, just wanna say you're great. You're
1: you're look. You're I feel like Danielle just ethered the entire PR profession. I'm so God. Sorry. I'm like I'm sorry our PR friends who are listening, I <laughs> didn't realize so that Danielle was going to leap off the turnbuckle. I apologize. And uh, that was great. I loved it. I mean, but anyway,
0: in this case she she's it's not great because this is a this is PR for a horrible racist policy rather than PR for a game or a, whatever. Okay. Anyway. Moving right along, I, <laughs> There's a lot of this and this supports that this sort of idea of like just how mundane so much evil is. And I always appreciate that in games because games yeah. do have that sort of twirling mustache villain kind of uh, ethos a lot of the time or the villain that tells you that, you know, you're not so so different, you and I. Uh, so this is something I actually sort of appreciated in the game was like, you know, the the sort of really charming interactions you can have with the guards and the, the guard who wants to be an actor and things like this that are like – Really very charming and really like fun and nice to see. And then you step back for a second and you say, and they also work for this racist, horrible policy. Uh, And they all kind of got caught up in it in some way, whether or not they actually whether the security guard has anything to really do with this policy. They are still working for these people, right? They are still in this really complicated web of, of what human beings do, what we all have to do to work and survive, and, and all that sort of thing. Maybe I'm reading too far into it, but I, I do always sort of appreciate that when a game does this with, "Oh, evil's really mundane most of the time. Most of the time it is paperwork and crappy voicemails and things like that. It's just it, it happens to be for this racist policy as opposed to, you know, whatever grandiose thing.
2: Does the game understand that, though, or is it just that, well, it's an immersive sim, so we need, like, a janitor, <laughs> and we need, like, a, a character? You know what I yeah, mean? Like, like, yeah. on I, some level, it seems like this game doesn't understand, like, the rhetorical bullshit artists that are the people that run, like, campaigns like this, and then, like, the kind of person that would be running comms for... Uh, the Union Act would be more of a Kellyanne Conway and not someone who just, like, becomes fucking human when you, like, disarm them with, like, one piece of evidence. No, you move on to the next thing and you spin the bullshit. Like, the reason people like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Milo is, like, they're extremely good at talking, they never give an inch, and they always push back. And that's been the... the, If this is a, a game playing on the story of the last, you know, four years or so if your takeaway is that that like, well, if you were just to scratch away the veneer a little bit, like they're just people under there. Like I, that's not my takeaway from (laughs) these people. And it's not my takeaway for how these people would act if confronted in this manner either. So I granted this is all from this one conversation. So I I don't know where the game goes from here. If I'm overstating, it's interpretation of politics. I
1: think so. The game sort of knows it. I think for instance, there are literally conversations, um, The janitor, for instance, you overhear talking to one of the security guards at one point. Basically, they're debating this entire anti-immigrant turn in the country's politics. And the janitor is basically articulating this very old-fashioned view of, uh, you know, the way we do things where I'm from, the way I was raised, is if you're in our community, you're in our community. And as long as you're, you know, a good sort of person, you know, help out your neighbor, uh, do your job – um, you belong here. And that's, that's as simple as it is. And he's like, if we're going to start say, you know, saying who belongs here and who doesn't, uh, you know, who gets, who has the right to make that determination. So the game does have some of these, uh, less, uh, empowered characters articulate some of this perspective. I think it's also interesting that Bowman Carson is, it's very, um, like a halt and catch fire type era of technology. Like it's also a tech company where people are really high on the technology, the problems they're solving. Uh, And the game, the game does know that people can become mesmerized by what their technology can do and not really consider what it is being used to do. So for instance, you find like the programmers in between like, creating the database that will run this massive uh, index of persons living within alternate universe UK. Uh, they're also getting in trouble because they're running a land party uh, on company yep. grounds. <laughs> and it's a good period detail and it's a funny, it's a funny touch, right? Like it's literally like people screwing around on company equipment and using the internal network to play doom. And In the backdrop of this, that company equipment is actually there to index people for rounding up and deportation. But the game doesn't, I think maybe the game could stand to be maybe a little blunter with this, and I do think it has trouble recognizing that there are bad actors. One of the people who's most directly involved in some of the violence of the policy that you interview turns out to be also one of the most ambivalent characters you meet and comes across as almost ashamed and embarrassed by aspects of what they do. But that means that this is a game that there's almost like almost nobody you meet seems to really believe the thing they're trying to do is, is good or that it is in their interest to do it. And I think that is a, I think that's a problem because I think you get into – I think it is a blind alley to always assume that self-interest always points everyone in the same direction. And the only thing that leads us astray is misunderstanding what our self-interest is.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
2: No. um, I I was wondering how much maybe for the two of you that are um, you know so deeper to immersive selves than I am, I wonder how much is – maybe how much of this is like – a flaw or intrinsic to the design of these sorts of games in which you are always supposed to find layers upon layers upon layers of information and so it's like oh i open this one you know shelf and i find this one piece of information i find this other sh- sh- you know like the, the the very the reward structure for an immersive sim uh runs not necessarily but perhaps leads you to run counter to like more authored direct um uh, rhetorical, like, uh, uh, writing because of the nature of how you're trying to unfurl it for the player. And like, that's what you're, you're, you're here for this. This is how you're supposed to explore and, and learn about the game. And so, especially when you're dealing with like topics of politics and especially like modern ones where there, there should be like pretty clear takeaways, especially given what the game seems to be setting up for. Like, I wonder if it falls into a trap of not being as declarative as it should be by the very nature of its design.
0: In, in sort of trying to work through that question, I sort of did a little baby thought experiment of, like, Please. if I if – I t- in real – not in real life, but if I was somehow able to create a game out of my office, for example, and actually go into everybody's email and actually go through every piece of information on everybody's computer and, you know, do the immersive sim thing in some sort of real-life setting with the amount of information that's there, it would probably be pretty hard to come out with any kind of – distinct through lines, right? And maybe we could find a couple uh, that sort of made sense. But so much of the real world is is information overload, right? And we're sort of trained in certain ways to look for particular pieces of information. And in, in an immersive sim, It's closer to that than most other games where you'll have one email and that only has one narrative purpose, right? Of like, okay, I read the email and now I go to A to B to C to D. Whereas in something like this, you're still looking at objects. You're still sort of able to look at all this sort of information on the periphery. But I do think uh, you need to be careful when you're making this type of game to be very intentional with everything that you're writing and be very intentional with what the meaning of any given object is. I I think it's... uh, I don't want to say failure here because I do really like the game. I do think it, it it does some things extremely well. But the fact that I think we are having some confusion about some of its viewpoints and some cloudiness and some fogginess here, it is possibly on the writers more so than the designers, in my opinion here. Uh, in terms of what you're doing mechanically, it's 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 a fairly stripped down immersive sim. So it's not as if I am sort of authoring a wild experience where, you know, my character in Prey figured out her way through the entire station using the glue gun and that's all she did. You know what I mean? Like that story that I wrote in terms of like what my character did versus this is entirely a game about sneaking around and hacking into emails and, and, you know, using floppy disks and things like that. So yeah, I I do think this is actually on the writing more so than it is on like the type of game. I guess that was a long way of getting there, but (laughs)
1: yeah. I I agree. I think if you look at a lot of, other immersive Sims, they do use a little more blunt force in getting their point across. Like Dishonored, there are cool things to explore, but in general what you'll find is that every piece of correspondence almost always relates either directly to the plot and gives you a sense of where people stand in relation to that. Or there's a full vignette that is uncovered in one space that like has a, like you basically know what happened here and it's clear. This is a lot of ambiguous office talk and people just living their lives and when they are getting their job done they're setting up an authoritarian uh, nativist police state but they don't really identify they don't identify uh clear through lines with that i do think what i do put on designers is it should not be anywhere near as hard as it is in this game to unpack all of all of what is going on. Like I ended up playing levels way more than I actually wanted to because I just needed more time to explore and find what the hell is going on and actually listen to audio tapes uh, and figure that stuff out. So I think that is, they made it hard to access the complete picture they're, they're trying to paint. Uh, And I, and I think that is another, that is an unforced error in terms of, this is this is kind of an intricate story with a lot of nuance, but then you also put everything on a clock that doesn't give you a lot of time to appreciate mm. yeah. the nuance and sort of meditate on it. Uh so it is it is a complicated story that literally doesn't give you time to read it. Um and that I think is another area where the occupation kind of stumbles. Uh I, I don't know. I, I I would like a patch at some point to come out and be like, you know easy mode we got rid of the timer Hell yeah story mode uh, easy mode yeah yeah especially like that's the weird thing I, I always did feel like this game yeah almost like has this horror of turning into uh, everyone's gone to the rapture where literally you just walk through scene after scene and, see, and 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 see a tableau um but their solution was you know what if tiny office alien isolation um with 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 harmless little steve wandering around uh as as the alien um yeah i, I really <laughs> enjoyed that one encan- like i was just scrubbing through a let's play trying to get to
2: like the major points and it's like at some point the player tries to break into like a clearly some place where there's evidence locked away and then they're like hey 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 like you're not supposed to be here but you know what i'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and then like <laughs> That's the game's way of, like, warning you, like, you better sneak in better. I was like, that's extremely, it's extremely funny. It made me laugh quite a bit.
0: If they framed you as not a, you know, white dude reporter, maybe we could have had a little bit of commentary here in terms of the game. Well, I I mean, the game's
1: whole relationship with race is actually interesting because a lot of the people – like, it is a nativist government policy that's being put into practice, but only against – like, the only victims you hear about are, like, French people, (laughs) uh, which is – And then a lot of the people at Bowman Carson, it's a very inclusive game. Uh, There is one worker uh, who is, uh, you know, hard of hearing and communicates via sign language. Uh, A number of characters are uh, people of color, uh, which is good. But again, if you're literally making a game about like nativist uh, policy – that is rarely just about one's immigration status where like, oh, it's just, you know, doesn't matter if you're white. We just want to make sure your paperwork is in order and and, and you belong here. There's almost always an element of like <laughs> uh, uh-huh. racism uh, built around like your religion or the color of your skin. And this game kind of sidesteps that. And I understand why you might want to sidestep that. Like you want to present it just in the purest, most abstract form. Of what a policy like this would be, but it does leave you in a weird place where, um, you know, you have a racist policy in a game that models a society without racism, uh, and that ends up being a slightly strange place um, for for the for the game to wind up. Uh, just an aside here, uh, you know, we're, we're running a bit long. I also just thought it was strange that. With the 1980s setting, clearly there are elements of the Thatcher period uh, trying to be evoked here. And again, though, the politics are completely removed from Thatcherism, which is almost entirely about – like economics and about breaking leftist organizations and breaking up worker power and favoring corporations and privatization. Uh, there are, there's a lot of that. And and the, it's, it's very strange because the game is trying to, is it, sort of capturing the tumult of 1980s UK politics, but nothing that actually made them tumultuous, which I think is a bit odd.
0: Yeah, I kind of wish they would have picked... Uh- it's not that they, they could only pick one thread, but if they kind of, kind of stuck with one and, and maybe had some supporting detail uh, from others, I think it would have really helped some of this go down in terms of being just not as confusing about what the voice is and about what it's saying. Um, it is a little bizarre that they didn't just go with the the Thatcherism, given that this is the time period uh, for that, and you could you could do plenty of things with the war on the poor. That you are also kind of trying to do uh, with the war on on immigrants and on uh, you know completely dismantling privacy rights. So this is again. Uh, I wonder if it's something of a problem. Uh, just just guessing here, but I do wonder if it was just kind of a bit off more than they could chew thematically and narratively here for how tight yeah. of a game this is and and ended up being, which is not a. It's not a complaint to say that the the game is tight and and, and a fairly, you know, reasonable uh, length in terms of playtime. But for how much content is here story-wise and how many kind of like really dense political threads they're pulling at, it may have been better to kind of focus on one here.
1: Yeah, I think when you are using a combination of political moments and then aesthetic from a different period, um, you need to have space to explore what you're doing, otherwise, pastiche can end up becoming camouflage for whatever point you're trying to make. And I think that's where the occupation kind of ends up. Uh, it's frustrating because I think this has been one of the most interesting games I've played. This is why I made it a waypoint. Like I think it's a really fascinating game. I think its politics are interesting, even if they're not clear. Like I think it is a flaw that its politics are not clear because it means the story that it tells – I still don't exactly know what story I meant to draw. Like, what is the through line? What am I supposed to draw from this? Uh, but I don't think that completely overshadowed for me the degree to which this was a cool concept. And in a lot of ways was pretty well executed. Uh, they bit off more than they can chew, but it was a good bite.
0: Yeah. I agree. It Uh, was a good bite. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so it's a it's a cool direction for the immersive sim to go. Uh, and again, uh, I do ultimately recommend the occupation. Uh, and if you do pick it up, uh, I'm very curious what your your readings are on the game, and if uh, you know if you know a bit more about. The period that it is set in and, uh, you know, maybe there's things that it is evoking that would be clear to somebody who lived through 1980s Britain or 1990s Britain uh, that that maybe we're missing here. Uh, So I'd I'd definitely be keen to hear about stuff like that. Uh, Anyway, I think that will be it for today's show. Our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you? At Patrick Danielle.
0: At Danielle RI.
1: And that will do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Please be sure to rate and review us uh, on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing. I think we're a five-star cast, uh, (laughs) but really it's it's up for you to discover.
0: We're in the triple doubles, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> just breaking records all the time. Uh, true, mostly on length and uh, lack of discipline, but nevertheless, records are being broken. Uh, we'll be back again with waypoint radio on Friday. Uh, you should also be sure and listen to be good and rewatch it where this week, uh, Austin and I ended up t- getting sidetracked into, we had to put pride and prejudice mm. on break for one week, uh, And we ended up getting sidetracked into another Jane Austen adaptation, 2009's uh, BBC adaptation of Emma, starring Johnny Lee Miller and uh, Ramola Garai, which was really, really good and made for a very good discussion. So I hope you'll join us for that and join us again next week for another episode of Waypoints. But until then, do not give in to Astonishment.
0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns. Perfect. Yay, great pod. That was super fun, yeah, guys. That was
1: a good one. That was great.
0: I enjoyed that. Was, that, that was a lot. an
1: extremely good pod.
0: <laughs> good meaty pod. And also fun. Yeah,
1: it was only an hour fifteen.
0: See? Tight. <laughs>
1: We we can do it
2: by Tight. accident.
0: <laughs> nice,
2: Cato. You're laughing
1: a little too hard at that.
0: <laughs> it's,
1: it's, Austin, it's I struck. fucked up bad yesterday. Is all I'm gonna say. Oh we no! How long, How long did you go? We got onto a bit that turned out not to be a bit. Rob, I, all I asked, all I asked <laughs> was for a time code. I couldn't tell you, but Cato, I'm sure knows to the second. Kato. hold oh. on.
0: Three hours. Oh, he's got a, He's got a screenshot. Two hours, 49 minutes, and 24 seconds. Yeah, wow. that
2: sounds about right.
0: <laughs> wow. Good.
2: Yeah, that sounds about right.
0: Very good. Oh. That's cut down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say, that's the edit.
2: <laughs> they haven't laid us off yet. Give them time. <laughs>
0: Not yet. <laughs> God.
2: All right. They'll lay us off and, like, what were they doing here again?
0: <laughs> when you go through the email, someone, someone go set.
1: excavate this we come back with a report.
0: <laughs> God.
1: Why is this room so sweaty? (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. See ya. All right. Take care, gang. Bye. Bye.
2: Honestly, Electric Wine, not the worst name for, like, a, like, early 2000s, like, video game blog. I'm trying to get noticed. (sighs) Here are my takes.
1: Come follow my takes at Electric Wine. Tevis. still a good name for a white supremacist-free social media platform.
0: God. (laughs) Correct. All right, uh, let me get my recording
1: going. I've got my recording going. Um, you're recording, Patrick. You're recording.
2: Yeah, I just started. All right, cool. cool.
1: Uh, on twenty six. Oh, sure.
2: Hold on. Oh. No,
1: no, no, <laughs> not on the website. Wait, I can do it.
2: <laughs> we should do it again. We should do it again. But I just wanted to. Just wanted to. I made it, but we should you do it again. Did make- All right, thirty eight. Like I got there and like the page was like caching and loading and the seconds were going by really fast, but I was like, I'm to I'm jumping
1: in. I got I, it. No, I love hurry up offense. Uh, classics. Yeah. All right, here we go.